Listener Production. Ariana Patrick here and welcome to The Briefing. The death toll in Japan has risen to more than 80 this morning following that massive 7.6 magnitude earthquake that hit the country earlier this week. The numbers of injured are still growing, measuring in the hundreds, while tens of thousands of homes have been destroyed. Now, authorities are intensifying their efforts to rescue those trapped under collapsed buildings as it's now been 72 hours since the quake, which is when survival rates drop. Over 150 people have been rescued, while 30,000 people still remain in evacuation centres. But what goes into freeing someone after their home has collapsed around them? And how is the most earthquake-prepared country in the world dealing with the aftermath? In the Japanese context, their buildings are built for earthquakes, and so that means that when they collapse, we can expect them to collapse in particular ways. That's today's briefing, but first headlines with Eleanor Harrison-Dengue. Hey, Rihanna. So we're starting it off still in Japan. Details are continuing to emerge about that miracle evacuation that saved 379 lives after a Japan Airlines aircraft collided with a smaller plane at Tokyo's Haneda Airport. The crash killed five of the six people on board the smaller Coast Guard aircraft, excluding the pilot who was critically injured. Now, a JAL spokesperson has come out talking about what was happening on the Japan Airlines flight, and they say that a fire took place, but the pilots didn't recognise it in the beginning and had to learn about it through the cabin attendant. The first thing the JAL cabin crew did after that, when they realised that passengers were seeing that the plane was on fire, was to keep them calm and seated. And then apparently the aircraft's announcement system was also damaged, so the crew had to use megaphones and shout instructions. And then after that, that evacuation has been described as a miraculous 18 minutes, Rihanna. Yeah, so details over the crash and what happened are slowly coming to light. And one of the things that they've mentioned is that passengers leaving their hand luggage behind before going through those emergency exits and slides out of the aircraft before it was engulfed in flames is one of those things that helped in getting everyone off that aircraft. Um, a transcript of communications with Haneda Airport's control tower show that the Japan Airlines flight had clearance to land on the runway while the Coast Guard aircraft was was ordered to move to a holding position with the Coast Guard acknowledging that. And although it's been reported that the captain of the Coast Guard plane said that he did have clearance to enter the runway, it's different to the Transport Ministry transcript. Now, the flight recorder and the voice recorder from the Coast Guard plane have been recovered, uh, but they've only got the flight recorder from the JLL flight and are still looking for the voice recorder, which is yet to be found. So those investigations are still continuing. Yeah, I think also what's interesting about this one was that usually if uh, something like this happens where a plane is coming into land and they see another plane on the runway, they'll normally just stop you know, landing and then they'll just sort of take off again, like sort of regain altitude. Um, But unfortunately, because it was dark on Tuesday, that's why the JAL pilots didn't see the smaller plane. In the US, hundreds of pages of court documents have been made public relating to the late sex offender Jeffrey Epstein, who was accused of abusing a string of underage girls and they're part of a lawsuit filed by one of his alleged victims. So the papers identify a number of his associates and public figures as mentioned in the proceedings of a case by an Epstein accuser filed against his girlfriend Gerlaine Maxwell in 2015. 
Maxwell was sentenced to 20 years prison by a New York court in 2022 for procuring teenage girls for Epstein to abuse. Maxwell is appealing the decision. Epstein pleaded guilty to soliciting prostitution from a minor in 2009 and took his own life in 2019 while awaiting trial over sex trafficking charges. So this is about more than 900 pages of papers which have been released overnight, which caused the court website to crash. New York Judge Loretta Preska ordered the documents to be released, but has acknowledged that many of those named had already been identified by the media or in Maxwell's criminal trial. Now, before these documents were unsealed, people whose names were to be disclosed had until New Year's Day to appeal the order. Judge Preska says that while many others didn't raise objections to the release of the documents, she did order that some of the names remain redacted because they do identify victims of sexual abuse. And more documents, Eleanor, are expected to be released in the coming days. And a record's been set for the biggest Sydney funnel web spider ever found. The spider named Hercules measured 7.9 centimetres from foot to foot. They usually range in length from 1 to 5 centimetres. Hercules was found on the New South Wales Central Coast and was initially given to a local hospital. But he's now been given to the Australian Reptile Park and will help with their anti-venom program. Hercules surpassed the park's previous record holder from 2018, who was named Colossus. And there hasn't been a fatality in Australia from a funnel web spider bite since 1981. Yeah, and apparently the reason that there hasn't been one since 1981 is because of this anti-venom program. So there you go. I mean, I like a spider story, but I don't think I need to see a nearly eight-metre spider. I'm okay with not seeing that. (laughs) Eight-centimetre spider. Oh, my God. I think I would freak out if I saw an eight Eight meters spider, <laughs> particularly if it's a funnel web. Uh, yeah, I like a huntsman. I don't mind a daddy long legs, but a killer spider, I'm okay. I'm gonna run from that. <laughs> That's it for the headlines. Thanks, Eleanor. Coming up next, a fascinating chat with a disaster expert about how Japan is the best in the world at dealing with earthquakes. Japan sits on the western edge of what is known as the Ring of Fire. Now, this is a belt of volcanoes and earthquakes, which is one of the Earth's most tectonically active places. And as much as 10% of the world's volcanic activity takes place in Japan, which means the country is arguably the most prepared in the world for seismic activity. Now, we're going to find out how that played into Monday's catastrophe. Arnold Dix is a disaster expert. He was involved recently in the freeing of trapped tunnel workers in the Himalayas. He also worked in Takia when the devastating earthquake hit last year. And he's also a member of the Society of Social Management Systems in Japan. Arnold, thanks for joining the briefing. Just how bad was this earthquake in Japan? It's big. It's as big as the one that we had almost a year ago in Turkey. Yeah, big. Japan has put a lot into being prepared for earthquakes, but just how prepared is it as a country? Well, everyone who's born in Japan gets brought up thinking about disasters from the time you're a little kid, um, even before you go to school. That means that everybody is an emergency responder. Their systems, institutions, organisations are geared up to respond. Um, It means that 
from the emergency services, the civil defence, the the armed forces, everyone is ready ready to go. So this is what actually makes Japan so incredibly capable in a disaster. It's they are prepared emotionally, psychologically, um, in an engineering sense, socially. This is business as usual in Japan. And that's how they mobilise so many people so quickly. And that's also why you don't see a call for international aid. It's why you don't see immediate calls. We need a billion dollars for our emergency rescue. No, no, no. They're ready, they're organised and they're on it. Arnold, when there's a possibility that people are trapped and you've got the initial call out of assessing, I guess, what has just happened to then moving to, well, are there people that need to be pulled out of rubble? How is that coordinated and what needs to be considered when you are searching for survivors that may be trapped under buildings? That's a really interesting question. So the the first thing that's often not obvious is you have to have an understanding for how things are done in the particular area that the uh, the rubble is. So that is, how is the engineering actually done in anticipation for an earthquake? So in the Japanese context, their buildings are built for earthquakes. And so that means that when they collapse, we can expect them to collapse in particular ways. Um, that means, for example, the way their concrete floorings attached to the walls, the way their roofs are attached to the walls, the way their actual uh, buildings are attached to the ground is, is quite specialised. So in a Japanese context, if you're a Japanese emergency responder, the sorts of things that you'd be looking for are can we see the the structure of the building in the way that we'd expect, albeit that it's lying on its side? Um, if it's lying on its side, where would the likely safe zones be? Typically there around the stairwells, the doorways, the where the, the sort of major structural elements are. And as a rescuer, what we're, we're trying to identify are the zones within the collapsed or turned over on its sideways building where people might be um, still alive, um, might, might still be safe. And then, of course, developing a safe way to get in. Uh, it's really important to remember you don't want to injure the people who are trying to perform the rescue, so we, we need to approach the rescue carefully as well. Uh, so in the Japanese context, that's sort of the, the approach around the buildings. Um, the difficulty in this zone, um, which it's not that it's atypical, it's it's to be expected. Um, the area where these earthquakes have occurred has got a lot of floodplains on it. So that's off the mountains before the sea. And that ground, it liquefies, or the technical term is liquefaction. Uh, so there where people are buried or you know, houses have fallen down big cracks or or people have fallen down the cracks or vehicles have fallen down or, or, or you're just covered. There what we do is very careful, like mining. Uh, so that's at its finest scale by hand. That's what you would have seen me up to in India recently where we're actually doing the, the rescue um, by hand. Uh, and the reason we do that is we go very, very slowly, um, just not wanting to disturb anything, not wanting to cause another secondary collapse, mindful that there could be another earthquake, indeed, as there are and there will continue to be uh, in Japan. Uh, and we literally just stone by stone go in and, and find people and rescue them. So uh, we use special tools to do that, everything from carbon dioxide monitoring, thermal imaging, so we can find uh, live live bodies. We use um, listening, good old-fashioned listening, listening for voices, listening for tapping. Um, 
helping also with microphones, things like that. And then we go and we, we rescue people. You mentioned Turkey and last year, that earthquake there. And I'm wondering what are the differences that you've noticed between, I guess, this natural disaster in Japan and what happened in Turkey? I'm delighted to be talking to you about a Japanese disaster of the sort that Japan is prepared for because you compare it with what happened in Turkey. It really is. It's the same size earthquake uh, in terms of the number on the Richter scale and it's about the same spatial area as what's happened in Japan. And look at the difference. In Turkey, you're dealing with, I think it's in the order of more than 40,000 people killed and the destruction of in the order of a quarter of a million houses. The reason it's so different, and also the engineering, engineering should be the same in that both in Turkey and in Japan, the possibility of earthquakes is very high. In Turkey, it's a very high fault zone. But the big difference is that in Japan, they have really, really strong institutions and really strong regulatory environment and a really strong enforcement of building controls and building laws and also a very strong history of innovation in construction techniques. If you look at the pictures of the buildings in Japan and compare them with what you see in Turkey, um, in Turkey the construction is much more traditional uh, with you know block walls and cement and what have you. And look, let's call a spade a spade, quite high levels of corruption. So in the actual constructed buildings in Turkey where they could have been built to withstand the earthquakes and where the good citizens would have believed that they had been built to withstand the earthquakes, there was clear evidence of deep entrenched corruption. And so the sorts of engineering that should have been in the buildings, which was mandated to be in those buildings, wasn't. So here you've got two similar events. You're in two countries which both have excellent engineers. In both countries, they know how to deal with the earthquakes. And in Turkey, they hadn't. And that's a huge difference. And it it shows the importance of, of, of good governance. And yeah, it's really sad. I, I'm sorry that I'm, I'm talking like this, but you know, more than 40,000 people dead. That's part of the consequence of having a different, a different approach to governance. And Japan, by contrast, is they take this stuff so seriously and the levels of corruption are much lower. And so you end up with buildings which are inherently safe. I'm sorry I'm calling it like that, but that's that's the big difference. One of the things that always comes out of natural disasters is the response, I guess, and the complaints sometimes to those responses. But how telling and helpful are sometimes those complaints from people who are on the ground, who are suffering with that natural disaster and the kinds of complaints that they're making? What does that also tell you about a situation? Oh, I think the complaints are terrific. It's like your 360 review in the office. Uh I saw a number of complaints coming from areas in Japan that there hasn't been enough quick food. Also, what isn't complained about. So what we're not seeing from Japan is an outbreak of disease. What we're not seeing from Japan are people dying from exposure to the cold. People are getting cold, um, but we're we're also not seeing certain sorts of complaints. Arnold, 
In terms of Japan rebuilding, I mean, what do you think that recovery is going to look like? And I mean, how quickly do they generally rebuild after an earthquake? Quick. Yeah, no, they're, they're industrious. I mean, they they are quick builders. Kobe, they rebuilt Kobe after the, you know, the massive earthquakes there in Kobe. If you go back to Kobe now, you couldn't even tell uh, that the earthquakes uh, had devastated that, that city. Uh, the roads will be, be rebuilt quite quickly. Housing, of course, it takes time to rebuild the housing, um, but no, it'll, it'll be quick. They're very, very organised, very powerful in, in that, not, not powerful just, oh, look at us, we're Japan, we're big and strong. No, powerful in the sense of really strong collective resolve to get things done. They work very well as a team. Uh, so Japan, very close-knit community, um, very close-knit societies. They, they just they get on and get things done. And I would expect you'll see a recovery very quick there. What? can the rest of the world learn from Japan and the way that they deal with disasters, particularly knowing that they live in an earthquake-prone place? First thing you do is you make sure when you build buildings, you build them so that they can handle an earthquake, number one. And that doesn't mean just having regulations. That means actually enforcing the regulations and making sure people really do follow the law as opposed to what happens in a lot of countries where you have the regulations, we know how to do the engineering, but it's not followed through. So that's the first thing. Actually just walk the talk. Uh, Secondly, make sure that your community get it. And that means people should live and breathe and understand that an earthquake is not something that might happen, you should assume it will happen. And so people know what to do. So just like on the videos you see of Japan, as soon as the earthquake happens, you'll see everybody ducked down. People got under their shopping trolleys, people got under tables, people got into doorways, all of that sort of thing. So your community knows what to do. Making sure, as the Japanese people do, that they've got some extra food in the house, they've got some extra water in the house so that they're ready. And Really, that's what we do in Australia with our areas which are disaster prone too. We have our emergency plans, we have our our food, we have in fire areas, we usually have our refuges. Actually, it's the same and that's what civilised, developed people do. We prepare for disasters and then we, we respond to them. So, yeah, and if I want to know about earthquakes, which I do from time to time, I go to Japan and they teach me a lot. That's Arnold Dix, a member of the Society of Social Management Systems in Japan, and he was also a part of that team that helped free trapped workers in a collapsed tunnel in the Himalayas last year. He was also in Turkey following that horrific earthquake in February last year, which killed more than 40,000 people. And just in an update this morning, Turkey has opened its first major trial investigation around the construction of those buildings that crumbled, and Turkish police have arrested around 200 people over alleged poor building construction. Listener.